0: The next most important thing is you gotta be willing to fail. Because if you're not willing to take risks, then you're just never gonna get to your end destination. And if you're afraid of failure, you're not gonna get to your end destination. You need to be willing to fail, but you need to fail fast. Figure it out, oh, that didn't work. I'm not gonna do that again. Pick myself up, dust myself off, let's try something different. And, you know, I kind of look at my, My career is not something you build, but you you build upon it, right? And I think about my journey and where I am today and how I never thought I'd be there. You also have to be willing to accept that your end destination may have looked like one thing when you started and it's something
1: totally different when you get there. And that's okay too. From Cobalt at Home, this is Humans of InfoSec, a show about real people, their work and its impact on the information security industry. My name is Caroline Wong and I am thrilled to introduce today's guest my friend and colleague Michelle Valdez. I first heard about Michelle, I first read about Michelle when she was highlighted in SC Magazine and I asked her to join me in co-creating a study called Women in Cybersecurity, a Progressive Movement. Um, As I was preparing for today's interview, I went back and I took a look at some of the notes that Michelle and I had put together during that time. uh, And I'd like to share that with our listeners. So the quote that I included from Michelle, at the time she was in a role, which was Senior Director of Enterprise Cyber Resilience at Capital One. And Michelle said, so many people naturally go to the threat. Think about the threat, want to stop the threat. It's sexy and adrenaline driven. I'm the kind of person who takes a different approach. I prefer to look at a problem. What do we want to prevent? And what is the outcome that we want? I work backwards from there. Michelle is a security leader with extensive security experience, developing both public and private cybersecurity programs. She's currently the chief information security officer at OneMain Financial. And before her current role, Michelle was leading enterprise risk and resilience efforts at Capital One. Here's where I'm gonna start reading from the SC Magazine article where I first found out about Michelle. She had received an award and was featured in this in this publication. And the article says, she has multiple degrees, including master's degrees in justice and public safety and information systems technology from the University of Washington and Auburn University at Montgomery, respectively. She then moved on to serve in the US Air Force for seven years, including a stint as operations officer for the Office of Special Investigations, as an analyst for General Dynamics, Department of Defense Cybercrime Center, and chief of staff of the National Director of National Intelligence. She then moved on to CERT Software Engineering Institute, where she was a team lead and senior engineer on the Cyber Risk and Resilience Team. It was also creepily, maybe not creepily, I was also stalking Michelle on the internet. I found a recent bio for a talk she did. And in her bio, she included my mantras. They include be the change you want to see in this world, live each day to its fullest, always remembering to stop and smell the roses. And at this point, you know, I think I could fill an entire podcast with me talking about Michelle and how awesome she is. But that is not the point of this podcast. And so I'd like to say, Michelle, welcome. And thank you so much for joining us today.
0: Thank you so much, Carolyn. It's such a pleasure to be here. Michelle
1: in your own words <laughs> since i since i just read a bunch of other people's words about your career i would love to hear about your reflections on your career specifically how did you come to work in the cybersecurity field
0: absolutely you know i was actually talking to my boss about this yesterday because i remember when i interviewed with him and you know very nervous about the interview He's the chief risk officer, has had an extensive career and it was over the phone and it's the first time I'd ever done a telephonic interview and get on the phone and he's like, oh my goodness, I just have to hear about your entire career. And it made me laugh because typically that's not how an interview goes. They don't want to hear about every single thing that you've ever done but he was fascinated by the diverse background of roles that I've had in my career. And I know that I've spoken with new women who are just joining the career field and, you know, they're asking you, how did you map out the path of your career? Um, And I said, yeah, I, I am absolutely not where I ever would have guessed I would have been. Having anything to do with cybersecurity or even computers when I was in college is, you know, probably the furthest from where I would have imagined uh, I'd be in my career. Um, But it's been such an amazing journey. And I just had the opportunity to be presented with some different forks in the road um, and decisions as to do I go right or do I go left? Do I go with what I'm comfortable with or do I go try something that I have absolutely nothing about and and be challenged? Uh, And that's really how I ended up in cyber security. I had left the Air Force after spending some time deployed overseas and was in the counterterrorism and counterintelligence world and really was not either of what I had planned on doing with my career. I had dreamed of being in the FBI as, you know, a behavioral analyst, you know, looking at, you know, going after serial killers and such, but, you know, you just never know which way your your life's going to go. And a former boss of mine gave me the opportunity to come help him build the Department of Defense Cybercrime Center. And i kind of laughed and was like, I have absolutely no idea about computers. Why on earth would you want me to do that? And he said, well, you really know how to build an organization. And that's what I need. So that's how I got into cybersecurity. Very privileged that every step of the way, I was surrounded by these incredibly intelligent and talented cybersecurity professionals who were very patient with my every single question about what they did, because I I wanted to understand it. I didn't have any desire to really become a coder, but I wanted to understand it. And that's kind of how the journey I've been on is just getting the opportunity to work with people from forensic analysts all the way to, you know, chief information officers, chief technology officers, chief information security officers, who we're patient with all of my questions and, and and my desire to learn more. And, you know, now I'm in in a, a role that I I set as a goal. And I'm super excited to to be given this opportunity uh, to really try and make an an
1: impact in a field that I'm I'm really passionate about. It's so incredible. I learned something new about you just now which was that i never knew that at one point in time you envisioned yourself as a behavioral analyst in the fbi going after serial killers i really really like the mental image that i have right now michelle i would love to dive deeper into a couple of the things that you mentioned one of them is that you were an investigator in the air force And I'm very specifically curious to know how that experience affects your ability currently in your role and recently in your roles to take a step back and evaluate a problem that you're trying to solve. Yeah,
0: I think that it absolutely was probably the best
1: experience
0: I could have had to prepare me for where I am today, because not only did it. Help me prepare and understand how to just interact with people, especially people who have all sorts of different backgrounds. You you learn how to engage with people when you're an investigator, from interviewing to victim advocacy to interrogating bad guys. So I just take my interrogation experience and interrogate problems instead of people. And. it, it truly has helped me to also like when you're investigating a crime scene, I was one of those people who always saw the little things. You know, most people would go in, they'd see the, you know, here's what happened. But I was the one who was looking around and seeing all of the little things that sometimes those little things are really big things that may have not been seen by other agents that were on the scene with me. And that has made a huge impact, particularly in my current role, because you may want to implement a a new, broad, sweeping policy or change, technology change that's going to impact every individual. And if you don't stop to think about those little unintentional consequences of what you think is the right thing for the company it can become an abysmal failure and you could have unintended impact on people that you, you were really hoping to help, but actually you've, you've made it, you've made their life more difficult. Uh, so I really think that those are some of the key things that uh, I learned as a young federal agent that I'm now applying to a
1: leadership role in as a CISO. So cool. So, I, I took this cool note: interrogating problems instead of people. Um, and I love hearing your story about connecting those two parts of your career, um, Michelle. Another part that I'm curious about is your work in counterterrorism. So I'm very curious to know what parallels you see happening in the cybersecurity community that anti-terrorism and counter-terrorism may have gone through a couple of decades ago?
0: You know, it's a great analogy, and it's one that I've actually used since my very first day in the cybersecurity realm uh, because terrorism and anti-terrorism, counterterrorism programs had to go through the same kind of maturity that cybersecurity has gone is going through, has gone through some now more than before, but particularly when I was... Um, early on helping to build out information sharing programs. One of the things that was a real problem in the, in the counterterrorism community, particularly at first, was the lack of communication. All of the different agencies, they weren't talking to each other, they weren't sharing information, and it just was leading to breakdown in intelligence, You know, not knowing when, where, what could potentially be happening. And it was that competitive nature amongst the agencies that was really impeding our ability to truly see the picture clearly. Cybersecurity has gone through the exact same thing. And I think we've come just an unbelievable ways from where we were in the beginning of you know, 2010, 2011 timeframe when information sharing was, you know, really just starting to become something people were willing to do. Department of Defense had gotten into it, you know, many years before that, but a lot of other industries were still getting up to speed on that. But I think that you know now you see the the growth of information sharing organizations, the information sharing and analysis centers that you see across all the critical infrastructure sectors and in some cases multiple ones across sectors where there's subsector kind of capabilities where you you have some something in common that you need to sh- that you have information that could be related and need to be shared with each other i mean even non critical infrastructure sectors like the retail sector now has an isac and it truly was all of us as cybersecurity professionals understanding that there's no way that any one of us can can get ahead of this threat or prevent this threat or stop this threat. We have to do it together. And so when you now see on any given day information sharing just happening all day long, and you're hearing about stuff that's taking place at your competitors organizations, all as a means to, Hey, this is happening here. I want you to know about it. Cause I don't want you to have to go through the same thing is just fantastic. And it, really parallels what what I saw in the, you know, the counterterrorism realm, about three, four years prior to cybersecurity, really starting to get up and running and understanding that that this is a need. And where we are
1: today is just light years ahead of where we were just 15 years ago. So cool. So Michelle, you mentioned the ISACs, and certainly this is something that you and i are familiar with various public private partnership organizations too that are focused on information sharing and analysis i'm curious to know your thoughts on because you've you've seen what happens when we don't have the communication and certainly these types of organizations are going in a really positive direction where do you think is the next level for these organizations to take it to and how might we begin to build on the type of structure that is now established by these sort of vertical specific ISACs and get even more out of it? What opportunities do you see ahead? So I think that there's a couple.
0: Um, And I mean, it's an excellent question because we should always be trying to figure out how do we leverage these great venues and, and successful interactions to other problems. The first one that I see is, you know, we're always talking about our cybersecurity talent and the the lack or the very limited, you know, number of people who have experience in this area and how we're all competing for the same resources. I do believe that there is a huge opportunity across our cybersecurity organizations, but particularly in the ISACs, to look at how do we grow cybersecurity? Talent out of other career fields. So I'm a big believer that if you take somebody who's a leader in the military. Um, Doing something that there's just not a single job equivalent in the civilian sector for them to do, that you can take that experience, that leadership ability, the the life lessons and just the, the things that they have learned as part of the military and apply it to other problems. And cybersecurity is a perfect example of that. And there's a lot of groups that have been targeting people coming out of the military and getting them the training you know, at little to no cost or sponsored by companies in order to give them that opportunity for a great new career field in an area that our country really needs. And I think that there's that opportunity beyond just the military. I think that we should open our arms to providing opportunities to train people who have some of those skill sets that you just can't learn and give them the cybersecurity skills that they need. Another area, and this is something that I had thought was possibly an area, but now I really know that it is, now that I'm a CISO um, and a first-time CISO, we need to grow each other too. There needs to be the ability for us to share not just indicators, but us to share what we're doing, right? And I think in some cases, companies, they hold back on being, you know, wanting to say, here's all the things we're doing um, because there's concern about that. But when you get people into Chatham House Rule type of conversation, that information sharing starts to happen. It's so powerful. And so I think that the more we can do that and the more that experienced seasoned CISOs can take new CISOs and say, hey, here's all the things that I learned not to do. Um, here's some things that work really well. And I'm just here to help mentor you. We're all super, super busy. And I know that my calendar always looks like a nightmare. But if I could find an hour every week to mentor somebody like that to me is so worthwhile It's hard though to reach out and ask somebody who's a you know five times CISO at an enormous company and say, Hey, can you give me an hour? (laughs) So creating a platform for that, I think you're starting to see that in 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 pockets. I think that it certainly is an area where there could be definite growth and improvement across the board.
1: Very cool. Well, I look forward to working with you and other folks in the industry to help make that vision a reality. Michelle, you mentioned during our introduction that you're now in a role that actually allowed you to accomplish a personal goal that you had set out. And I'm going to go ahead and guess that you set an objective at one point in your career to be a CISO. How did you decide that was something you wanted to do? And what is it like? So I've had a very uh,
0: interesting journey in my goal to become a CISO. So uh, when I was working at Carnegie Mellon uh, Software Engineering Institute and I was working with CISOs and CTOs and CIOs and uh, CX, right, um, and convincing them across uh, different sectors to share indicators with the federal government and with each other, I got a lot of exposure to you know what the role was like. Um, but it was on the outside looking in. Um, When I went to Capital One and was brought on and was a direct report to the CISO, um, and then in the other roles that I had while I was there, um, particularly through a breach, I got to see what it really is like to be a CISO. And I started to think, there's just no way. Like, I really wanted to do that, it sounded really cool, but now that I see what it is, I don't know if I want to do that. And, you know, one of your quotes that you read kind of speaks to that because, you know, I'm a risk management professional. I believe strongly in resiliency. I believe in you know, key foundational programs and processes, so you minimize the impact. And I, I'm I'm not drawn by the adrenaline. I've, i I worked my 24 hours, you know, seven day a week watches after 9/11, and you know, I kind of feel like as if that's when I was younger. I've been there, done that. I I don't I don't know that I want to get into that mode again. And so I actually started to doubt my ability to do it, um, and com- pretty much convinced myself not to do it. Uh, when this role came along, and I'll never forget. I got the announcement and I read it, and I was like, "Oh my goodness, that actually might be like this role sounds like I could do it. You know, I started to get some confidence again. And I reached out to one of my very dear friends who is also a first time CIso, and she's like, "You absolutely have to apply. Like you just must do it." So I did. And, you know i'm I'm very fortunate that, my company has come up with a very novel approach on how to build a cybersecurity program, um, and that is that there are I co-lead our cybersecurity program with a technology leader who is our head of cyber tech, and I'm the head of cyber risk. And so I get to focus on all of those critical people process parts of cybersecurity that Many CISOs don't get the opportunity to focus on. They may have teams who do it, but they themselves may not get the same amount of time to focus on it. And it certainly also doesn't get the same level of investment that technology does. Uh, Since I report to the chief risk officer and Our head of cyber technology reports to the chief technology officer. We have two senior executive leaders in our company advocating for funds for us, advocating for the resources we need and the, the program support that we need, which not many CISOs, if any CISOs have. They don't have two leaders. They have the one who sits at the table or they themselves might sit at the table. But it's been an opportunity for me to be a CISO, achieve a goal and do the things that I just love because most breaches, when you really get down to it, it's about the people in process. It's not about the technology, but the technology is critical and you need to have that expertise to understand what are the right tools that you need in order to do the best that you can to protect your environment. And this just gives two big leaders the opportunity to do really impactful things for our company. Uh, so it's been a great experience. It's I consider myself incredibly, incredibly fortunate to have found such a unique opportunity. And I hope it won't be a unique opportunity going forward. I hope that it is something that others start to consider because there's a lot of pressure to move the CISO out from underneath technology. And our company did that, but they found that it just just having one leader underneath risk was also not the right answer. So I think we've really achieved something that's going to be impactful for our company. And it's a model that I think could be really impactful for others as well.
1: That is so cool. Michelle, I would love to hear more about the way that you think about building an organization. And this might be specific to your current role. This might be including reflections on other roles, um, on other colleagues and their organizations. It seems to me as though there is not today really a template or a playbook for the perfect way to create either a cybersecurity or a risk management or a cyber resilience program. Can you share with our listeners a little bit of your thought process when you begin to get into that sort of what I consider to be both art and science process of building a function?
0: Yeah, it definitely is art and science. And I think that all of us wish that there was just something we could pull off the shelf and implement. It's just never that easy. And there's reason for that, right? Every organization is is different. There's different people, different culture, different technology, different impediments, different beliefs, like across the board, a template just, it'd be difficult to have happen. In the the last few roles that I've had, I've built capabilities just from scratch. There just wasn't anything and we had to create it. And I think that the, the thing that has always worked for me is I first figure out where I'm going. Like, what is it? What is it that I want this to look at look like at the end? And I think you read another quote that I'll, I'll repeat. You, you work backwards from there. If you don't know where you're going and if you don't know where where you're trying to get to, getting there becomes an almost impossible or at least incredibly more difficult than it needs to be. So first understanding what is it that you're trying to build? What do you want it to look like? And then figuring out how you get there. And that is a big People piece. You know, you have to listen to people. You need to get input and understand what their thoughts on it are, not go into it with the I'm going to build exactly what I want and just have people build it with me. Um, It has to be a shared experience. You want people to be not only bought in, but wanting to be part of the journey, wanting to be part of the creating building, that is so critical. So the next thing is just really building the relationships, listening to people, taking in all, all of the ideas, not approaching it with ego or a feeling that you know best and this is how you should do it. The next most important thing is you got to be willing to fail because if you're not willing to take risks, then you're just never going to get to your end destination, and if you're afraid of failure, you're not going to get to your end destination. You need to be willing to fail, but you need to fail fast. Figure it out. Up, oh, that didn't work. I'm not going to do that again. Pick myself up, dust myself off. Let's try something different. That is another really critical, important thing. And you know, I kind of look at my. My career is not something you build, but you you build upon it, right? And I think about my journey and where I am today and how I never thought I'd be there. You also have to be willing to accept that your end destination may have looked like one thing when you started and it's something totally different when you get there. um, And that's okay too.
1: Awesome. Michelle, the last question I have for you is if you could go back and talk to your 20 year old self what would you tell that woman? (laughs) Oh my, that's so long ago. (laughs) It's a big question.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So my 20 year old self, uh, I was in such a different place when I was 20 years old. And for fun, Um,
1: if you're up for it, you know, maybe you can share with us and your audience who were you? Where ad- I was? Who were you? How would you characterize yourself? And then what might you say if you could okay. talk to that person? That, that would be kind of fun if you we if wouldn't mind indulging us.
0: Not at all. So when I was 20 years old, I was married in my first marriage that did not last. I was running a clothing store, a men's clothing store, totally different than what I'm doing today at a mall in Washington state. I was young. I had the belief that I was going to be able to take over the world. And I was very frustrated because I was trying to get my college degree, but I was, you know, one class at a time. I mean, it took me eight years to get my bachelor's degree, which is actually okay. But at the time it didn't feel okay. And so I was wanting to be Five steps ahead in my career at the age of twenty, and I mean I think I think we all do that like we're we're so ready to to be that successful person because um, you want to get past eating peanut butter and jelly sandwiches every single day uh, because you don't have any money. So, wow, what would I tell myself? you know I think that I would tell myself to believe believe in myself a little bit more. I think that throughout my career, I was really great at talking myself out of what I could do, um, and convincing myself that I couldn't do something, Um, and not so not as good at saying, "Here's all the things you actually can do." I mean, I had moments, you know, I had I had pieces of my career where I, you know, strive to achieve something and I did, and it always felt super good, but you know, I spent. Majority of my career after I graduated from college in career fields where uh, I was the only woman in the room a lot of times. And that's really hard when you're young, you know? Um, I'm so happy that women coming up in this field, you know, they're seeing more and more women, you know, not just in the field and as super amazing technical developers and coders and uh, technologists, but also in leadership roles. Uh, but but that just really wasn't an option for me. The other thing I think I'd probably tell myself is to, you know, take advantage of the advice being given to you at the time. There were several times where I had just amazing leaders who, were trying to put me on the right path or keep myself keep my myself out of my own way, and I had a little bit too much attitude and thought that I knew better. And there were things that I could have learned faster or I could have done better had I been more willing to listen to those who had the experience and 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 the knowledge and and were actually just looking out for my best interests. So those were probably the two things. But man, that is a really Good and difficult question.
1: <laughs> Thank you. You know, and I think that it's so fun for me to hear your reflection. I think it's so fun for all of us to learn about the fact that life takes tome- so many different twists and turns. And wherever you are right now at this moment, It's totally possible that in a few years, you'll be doing something completely different. And that to me is one of the themes that I've seen emerge from the conversations that I've been having with folks on the podcast. And so I'm thrilled. Michelle, thank you so much. Thank you for taking the time with us today. Thank you for sharing your story with us. We really appreciate it. Humans of InfoSec is brought to you by Cobalt.io, a a pentesting-as-a-service company. Like what you hear? Subscribe, share, or leave a review wherever you enjoy podcasts. And don't forget to say hello. You can find us on Twitter at Humans of InfoSec. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.